Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Health and Wellness in Focus program and podcast. This program and podcast is brought to you by the Wellness Connection. It is produced by New Covenant Church and Vision Communications. And I'm your co-host, Pastor Brian Hudson of New Covenant Church. The concept of this program is quite simple. We want to inform our community, our congregations, about the importance of health and wellness to provide resources and insight. This program brings guests who have expertise in the area in which we ask them to speak to us. This program is available on YouTube Live, also at our Facebook page. You also can find us at our website, wellnessconnectionindy.org. Please visit and bookmark that page. We've had many events over the past several months. Upcoming events are on the way. So please connect with us, join us, be a part of the solution to health and wellness in our community and congregations. The podcast is available on all the popular podcast outlets such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, wherever you find podcasts, just search for Health and Wellness in Focus and you'll find our podcast. Subscribe so whenever a new program is released, you get notification right away. Our theme scripture to the Wellness Connection is John 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The abundant life happens in your spirit, in your soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions, and in your body. We believe that God wants us healthy and able to function and be a blessing to other people. Our theme today is mental health best practices. And our guest for today's program and podcast is Pastor Joel A. Bowman, Sr., a native of Detroit, Michigan, raised in a Christian home. Pastor Bowman received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior at the age of 12. Pastor Bowman earned a Bachelor of Social Work degree and a Master of Social Work degree from Wayne State University. Pastor Bowman also graduated from the Michigan Theological Seminary, now known as Moody Bible Seminary. Upon moving to Louisville in 1999, Pastor Bowman began his ministry as a senior pastor. Since 2001, he has served as the founder and senior pastor of the Temple of Faith Baptist Church in South Louisville. Pastor Bowman is a licensed clinical social worker with over 30 years of experience in the mental health field. He has practiced as a clinician in the states of Indiana, Michigan, and Kentucky. He has also guest lectured at the Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University, Kent School of Social Work at the University of Louisville, Campbellsville University, Carver College, and the Baptist Seminary of Zimbabwe, Africa. A respected thought leader and freelance writer, Pastor Bowman has been quoted in the Washington Post, USA Today, the Associated Press, the Christian Post, and the Baptist Press. Currently, Pastor Bowman is the team leader and therapist with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, providing mental health treatment to America's military veterans. Pastor Bowman and his beloved wife, Nanette Mitchell Bowman, are the proud parents of two daughters, Kayla and Katie, as well as one son, Joel Jr. They also have one informally adopted daughter named Michaela. You can follow Pastor Bowman on Twitter and at his website. Those addresses are shown on the screen. 
I know that the insights we share today on our topic of mental health best practices will be a benefit to you, to people you know, and put us in a position to be a blessing to others. It is a blessing and an honor to have on our program today, Pastor Joel A. Bowman Sr. And let me say, this is actually our first time meeting in person. Yes, sir. <laughs> and we actually met through Twitter, where we are engaged in discussions and debates, truth-telling. Our topic today is a lot more personal in that we're going to deal with today the topic of mental health best practices. And as I said to you earlier in my introduction, uh, Pastor Bowman is a mental health clinician. He's both a pastor and a professional in this field. And what a wonderful mix of skills and perspectives we need in times like these. So let me say to my friend, yes, my friend who I've met for the first time in person, but been friends for many months, Pastor Joel Bowman. Welcome, Pastor. So good to be here. Yes, thank you for being on the program. And again, this is Health and Wellness in Focus, brought to you by the Wellness Connection, produced by New Covenant Church and Division Communications. I want to dive right in with our questions and give Pastor Bowman ample time to respond. And he has come prepared to help us, to inform us, to educate us, and to inspire us. First question, though, is more personal. Pastor Bowman, what motivated you to become a mental health clinician? Well, Dr. Hudson, this may sound a bit trite or cliche, but I simply wanted to help people. And as I was engaged in undergraduate studies at Wayne State University, it became known to me that social work was a tremendous field that encompassed a lot of different areas, including mental health. And what I loved about social work at the very beginning, at my introduction to it, was the fact that social work takes a very holistic and systemic view of mental illness. And so it looks at the macro, it looks at how systems impact on people's mental health. And so because of that, I personally thought that social work would be more appropriate for me as opposed to psychology or any of the other mental health disciplines. And ironically, I became a clinical social worker before I became a preacher. So I entered the social work profession in 1991 and wasn't licensed to preach the gospel until 1994. And so I've been in this journey a long time, and I just appreciate the ways in which God has given me opportunities to touch people's lives, not just within the walls of the church, but far beyond the walls of the church. And so I would describe myself very much as an integrationist. And what that means is I believe that it is possible to integrate the social work principles that I learned mm -hmm. in school with my faith and with biblical principles. It's been well said that all truth is God's truth. And so I believe that God can use a secular education to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so as an integrationist, I am bivocational. I serve, as you indicated before, as founder and senior pastor of Temple of Faith Church in Louisville. 
and I am engaged with serving veterans every day and providing for their mental health needs. And, you know, as we get started, I think it's important that we understand that there is, in fact, a biblical framework for mental health or a biblical framework for understanding mental health. We need to understand that God, in his creation of us, in his image, that he has made us to be whole persons, body, soul, and spirit. And in the church, oftentimes, I think that we focus exclusively or at least primarily on the spiritual, and we miss the sociological, the psychological, and the like. And so as I look at the scriptures, and I've brought with me several scriptures that I can reference that really get to the heart of how God conceptualizes mental health as he is the one who has created us. Mm -hmm. And I remember in Scripture, particularly Luke 2.52, it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And so we find that even as the God-man, even as God in the flesh, Jesus had to grow holistically as a human being. He grew in wisdom, that is intellectual or mental growth. He grew in stature, that's physical growth in favor with God, spiritual growth, and with men, Mm -hmm. social growth. And so I believe that very much we can see that there is a biblical framework for helping us to understand mental health. Let me share this. Um, It's not lost on us as well with with this wealth of professional expertise Mm -hmm. and that now you're in ministry, have been for a long time, it isn't lost that you're also an African-American mm-hmm. in a field where yes. there is a dearth, a dearth of black folk. What's that statistic? Yeah. So the National Alliance on Mental Illness did a study back in 2010, I believe, in which they determined that only 4% of social workers in this country are African-American, only 2% of psychiatrists and 2% of psychologists are African-American as well. And in fact, one of the reasons why I went into social work was to help our people. And they had told me back then, and you're talking 31 years ago, Mm. that there was a dearth of black professionals in this field, and that continues to this day. Mm. Now, continue expounding on how that the Scripture has informed your expertise in mental health? Yes, so some people have difficulty delineating where the spiritual ends and where the mental health begins in terms of how we conceptualize ourselves as human beings. And I believe that someone said it very, very aptly. They said that the body and the soul and the spirit are so intimately connected that they can catch one another's diseases, Wow! right? And so I think it's incumbent upon us to understand 1 Thessalonians 5.23, for instance, the Apostle Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So even though they didn't have the nomenclature of mental health back in Paul's day, Mm -hmm. I believe that the Holy Spirit had revealed to Paul some excellent insights in terms of how we are created and how God has so beautifully made us in his image. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And there's more, I'm sure, insight Mm. where that's concerned. And let me also share that. You'll see on the screen a uh, links to Pastor Bowman's Twitter page and his website. And I have been blessed with the resources. I mean, this this brother, he's not just pontificating, he's publishing. <laughs> you know, a lot of people just, just talk. They don't yes, write sir. anything. And so Pastor has written on these topics, and you'll find th- those resources at his website. Let me ask you this, Pastor. Why do people not seek help? And what are barriers to seeking help? Yes, and as I segue into answering that question, I think first and foremost, we need to define mental health and mental illness Mm. so that we're all on the same page as we launch into this discussion. So mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act, and helps determine how we handle stress relate to others, and make choices. Now, that comes to us from Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. That's what mental health is. And then we need to understand what mental illnesses are. Mental illnesses, according to NAMI, that is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, they're medical conditions, and I want to really emphasize that. They're medical conditions that disrupt a person's thinking, feeling, mood, ability to relate to others, and daily functioning. Just as diabetes is a disorder of the pancreas, mental illnesses are medical conditions that often result in a diminished capacity for coping with the ordinary demands of life. Mm. All right, so that is the definition of mental illnesses. Now, to answer your question, why do people not seek help, and what are the barriers to seeking help? There are several that I want to focus on, the first of which is that there is a social stigma. And a stigma is anything that has shame at its core. Mm. And there are a number of people in our society, even today in 2023, that still have a stigma with regard to mental health or mental illness that serves as a barrier to prevent them from seeking the help that they so desperately need. And I believe that that stigma is especially strong in the black community. Yes, it is. Especially strong. And and it's especially strong, I believe, because of all of the baggage that we carry that is connected to systemic racism and how we have been socialized to think about ourselves within the context of a racist society. Yes. Yes. And secondly, I think another barrier is spiritual beliefs. There are many people in the church that have this belief that if you just have enough faith, if you pray, if you read your Bible, that that will be able to solve all of your problems. Now, I would be the last person to doubt the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. However, I also believe that God gives to us some skills and tools in the natural that we can use to heal our diseases. Let me add to that. Yes, sir. I think COVID taught us that lesson. Indeed. Faith without works is dead. dead. 
That's right. I mean, literally mm -hmm. dead. Mm -hmm. And so that we must add our, our spiritual knowledge mm -hmm. is important. It's foundational. That's right. We cannot neglect the other parts as well. That's right. Please continue. That's right. So you got, you know, social stigma, spiritual beliefs. Thirdly, you have lack of financial resources. You have people who are either uninsured or underinsured. Yes, of course, that's you. particularly relevant to us in the African-American community. And then you also have different help-seeking habits or behaviors. So culturally speaking, we as black folk have been conditioned to seek a lot of our help within our family system, whether it is our immediate family or the extended family network. And then furthermore, because the church has historically been the hub of our communities, that we have been conditioned to seek help from our pastor, other spiritual leadership, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who may or may not be equipped in the area of mental illness. Usually not. Usually not. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Okay. All right. And then also you have historic and current racism that has fed distrust among our people and understandably so, you know, when you consider the Tuskegee experiment, when yes. you consider Henrietta Lacks and how there is a long history of health professionals abusing people of color, one can understand why that serves as a barrier in terms of our not seeking help. Let me share this also. Mm -hmm. uh, Indianapolis is the home base for Lily and uh, Lily. Endowment, of course, is the funding part, but mm -hmm. Lily, Lily, Eli Lilly, mm -hmm. pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. And they are constantly in search of people mm -hmm. to help with clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have enough diverse persons mm -hmm. in the trials, in the trials, you cannot develop medicines that are effective. That's right. And so African Americans, uh, now to their credit, they are very good about reaching out. Mm -hmm. We hosted an event last month in which they brought a whole, they brought two vehicles mm -hmm. in which people could come and, and learn more about that testing. So I know mm -hmm. it's different than mental health, uh, but certainly we need our people to step up and, and shed the stigmas mm -hmm. and realize that this help is there. Please seek it. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well said. Also, you have not enough mental health clinicians who are trained and positioned to meet the demand. Mm. The demand is so very high yes. in terms of providing mental health treatment that there simply is not enough of us to provide the treatment. And then connected to that, of course, there's a lack of providers of color that we already touched on. And then the last piece, I think, is a lack of culturally competent providers. So in those situations in which, let's say, a white or non-black person is having to provide treatment to an African-American, many of those individuals, and I can state this based upon my personal experience, mm -hmm. do not have the cultural competency mm -hmm. to engage those persons cross-culturally. So those would be the main barriers or the main preventers in terms of why people are not seeking mental health treatment. Let's talk about cultural competency. That's, mm. that's an important term. Mm -hmm. Let's define that for our audience. Yes. So cultural competency is simply the ability and the capacity that a professional would have 
to work cross-culturally, to work with individuals who are of a different culture or different ethnicity than they are. And unfortunately, even in 2023, there are many professionals that are not adept at working cross-culturally. Now, certainly there's been more of an emphasis in recent years on that. However, that is one of the barriers, is that there are people who are just not skilled Mm -hmm. in dealing with our people, the black community. And because that is true, we need our white brothers and sisters to lean into Mm -hmm. understanding different culture. Uh, You can appreciate your own culture. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to serve people, Mm -hmm. then knowing people, learning their culture, understanding, you know, more about what makes them tick Mm -hmm. is important. Without, without, without the, uh, you know, my best friend is black. Not, not that kind of stuff. No. <laughs> That's not competency. No, sir. Okay. No, sir. Okay. That's not competency. Okay. Pastor Bowman, how does your service as a pastor mm-hmm. interface mm-hmm. with your work as a mental health clinician and professional? Mm-hmm. Great question, because there's so few of us that would have those dual roles, and then plus me being an African-American, that adds a different dynamic. So as a pastor, I see myself as a pastor who happens to be a mental health clinician. Good. And as a mental health clinician, when I serve in that role, I see myself as a mental health clinician who happens to be a pastor. And so those roles, in one sense, are to be kept separate because the Kentucky Board of Social Work, one of our ethics is that we avoid dual relationships or conflicts of interest. And so therefore, when I'm working at the VA, which is my secular job, I am very much focused on that role as a clinician, right? And I just happen to be a pastor in that context. In my role as a pastor at the Temple of Faith, I look at myself strictly as a pastor who happens to be a mental health clinician as well. And that those two vocations borrow from one another. And so, for instance, as a pastor, I understand that Not all problems and issues in the church boil down to a spiritual problem or a lack of faith on the part of the member. There are people in our congregations who have both undiagnosed and untreated mental illnesses, Mm -hmm. right? Mental illness sits on our pews and in our chairs every single Sunday. And so we've got to understand that You know, it's not the devil every time that's at work. It is not necessarily a lack of spiritual maturity per se. Perhaps that person is out of medication, right? And because they're out of medication, there is some emotional lability or irritability, all right? Now, on the side of me being a clinician in my civil service job, what I've learned to do is to kind of borrow from some of those shepherding skills and experiences I've had over these last 24 years of pastoring. And so, for instance, if I have a veteran who's dealing with grief and loss, I can utilize the skills that I've developed over years working with the bereavement piece in the church. And so those two vocations, though they are separate, they complement one another. And over time, I've learned how to borrow from both. 
that's very insightful for, for all of us mm-hmm. and believers who um, are balancing their professional life with their spiritual life. Mm-hmm. There's no conflict. And nor is there a need to hold one up over the other because we live a life, well, life lived in balance is the best kind of life to live. And especially mm-hmm. when you are a preacher or a Christ follower. Uh, for example, I don't want a Christian lawyer. <laughs> right. I want a lawyer, a very good lawyer. A very good lawyer. <laughs> you know yeah, right, who, right. Who may be a believer, may not even be a believer. That's right. That's and right. so, but I, I prefer believers. Sure. Unless believers mistake spirituality for actual expertise. Mm-hmm. You know, in our discussions online, that's a whole other, we can get on that side and say different, but people sometimes would chime in on a topic, like mental health, for example. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll act as if, Bringing a Bible or bringing a scripture is a competency. Mm-hmm. It is not. No. Quoting scripture is not a competency mm-hmm. for mental health. That's correct. Now, it has it has benefits spiritually. Mm-hmm. But unless you're actually trained mm-hmm. to help somebody with mental health issues, right. just showing up with a Bible no. doesn't make you competent. That's correct. So people forget that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they think that whatever issue is, I got a scripture for it. Mm-hmm. That'll button it up. Right. Actually, it might make it worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Without understanding. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Let me ask you this now. Um, as African-Americans... What factors, you touched on this, you already answered this somewhat, mm-hmm. but what factors as, as African-Americans contribute to mental health challenges? You mentioned that already, some of that. Well, I think it boils down to one word, racism. There are so many different isms and issues that spring out from that, but racism in and of itself, I think, is the major contributing factor to our mental health challenges in this country. Significantly, both the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Medical Association have indicated that racism is a public health issue. I can't emphasize that enough. It is a public health issue that impacts all aspects of our health, inclusive of mental health. And in fact, this particular YouTube clip that we'll look at deals with that wonderfully. And so Let's pause and take a look at that. Let's check it out. It's probably no surprise that racism in healthcare, housing, employment, and education directly impacts racial disparities in health, from infant mortality to life expectancy, from chronic disease to infectious disease. But did you know that racism can also impact the health of our entire society, including the health of white communities? right. Living in racist communities can shorten the lives of both black and white folks. In 2016, a study from UC Berkeley found that living in an overtly racist community was linked to higher risk of dying from heart disease and other related diseases among both white and black residents. This was the first study to measure relationships between white people's racial bias and the health of whites and blacks in their community on a large scale. The study controlled for a variety of other factors we know to influence health and heart disease, such as a person's age, education, income, and living in a rural versus urban area. And even after considering all of these other factors, 
living in a racially hostile environment was significantly detrimental to both the group targeted by racial bias, in this case, blacks, as well as the group harboring the racial bias, in this case, whites, leading to shortened life expectancy across both. Other studies have also found this link, with white and black adults experiencing increased mortality risk when living in a community with higher levels of racism. So how and why does this happen? One possibility lies in our social connectedness and trust in one another. People who live in communities where racism is prevalent may be less likely to trust and bond with others. This lack of social connectedness can have negative health implications for the entire community, regardless of one's race. Think of our social networks as a web. Social capital is how strong that web is, based on the number and strength of ties we have to each other. Community-level racism can disrupt social capital, or the strength of relationships we have to people within our network. But having strong social capital can be the key ingredient that helps a community recover from adversity, whether it's a natural disaster or economic recession, and promote overall community cohesion and well-being. This growing body of work tells us that the stakes are too high to ignore and can be a matter of life and death. Racism is like air pollution. It's particularly harmful for communities who experience higher levels, and it's also harmful for the entire population. So being black in America in and of itself is challenging to one's mental health. Specifically, I'm thinking about the lingering effects of racial trauma. And when you look at the whole subset of racial trauma, the father of racial trauma research is a man by the name of Dr. Robert Carter. And he's done some excellent research on racial trauma. And by racial trauma, I'm talking about the lingering effects of slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, redlining, being racially profiled, brutalized by police, having to have the talk with children, especially our males, about how to be safe when they're in the presence of the police. And so, as well, experiencing racial discrimination on the job and experiencing secondary or vicarious trauma as a result of things that we've witnessed secondhand. For instance, the video of George Floyd being murdered. That is an example of how we can experience secondary or vicarious trauma. And I don't believe that the average white person has any understanding in terms of how seeing those things can impact those of us who are of African descent, given our history with racism. Yes, and given the conditions, even we still see sometimes right. in the country. I try to inform uh, people, and white brothers and sisters, that don't feel guilty. Mm. You're not guilty, mm. but you have benefited from That's a system right. in which others were denied rights, mm -hmm. uh, treated brutally in some cases, and so that it's, it's important to then acknowledge mm -hmm. what has happened. See history for what it actually is. Mm -hmm. None of us should be in our feelings more than we are into the facts. That's right. And so that what's happened in the past has rippled effects into the future. For example, the, the massacre 
at Greenwood yes. District yes. in Tulsa in 1921, mm. mm-hmm. it destroyed an entire prosperous black neighborhood. That's right. And in, as far as we know, some never recovered mm-hmm. generations later, mm-hmm. although the city has come back in some ways. Mm-hmm. But when you destroy and you kill prosperous people, smart people, mm-hmm. and then they don't, they cannot reproduce and bring forth children. So a whole generation is lost. A whole generation, yes. And then there are people uh, who recently passed away mm-hmm. 10, 20 years ago mm-hmm. who are still living the effects. Of, they actually lived through the massacre. That's right. So that's an example of how uh, we today's African Americans, we don't blame anybody, mm-hmm. but we want people to acknowledge Mm. that the effects of the past ripple into the future. That's right. Both good effects as well and Mm. bad effects. So Mm. don't ever discount when uh, African-American is is talking to us about things that they understand. Mm -hmm. Don't push back against it. That's right. Sit, listen, and learn something. Yes. Lived experience is so very important. Yes, it is. Right. And sometimes our white brothers and sisters look for some special qualifications that would position us to be able to teach them in this area. Well, guess what? Lived experience in and of itself is enough. Yes. Right? And so as I think about lived experience, I'm reflecting upon this whole issue of police brutality and how that specifically has impacted us and continues to impact us. And really, when you look at the historical context, you can go all the way back to the slave patrols of the 1700s. You can go all the way back to the beginnings of American policing and see that the brutalization of black bodies has been a preeminent issue for years. And there is a, a very interesting video of Robert Ory, the retired basketball player, talking about his experience in the area of police brutality and I think we need to take a look at it because it really illustrates this issue of racial trauma. Let's watch that now. Former Laker Robert Ory had a very different response to the events of the past few days. Ory is now an analyst on Spectrum Sportsnet. It's hard to tell your 14-year-old son yeah. that I worry about him when he walks out that door. I have a 21-year-old <laughs> son. I worry about him because black men are... Are endangered species pretty much. At the end of the day, I want you coming home to me. If you have to lay down on the ground and they can kick you, beat you, at least you're going to go to the hospital and you're going to come home to me. And I already lost one child. I don't need to lose another. And, and I don't think people understand, especially white people, how hard it is for black people to watch that. This is a problem that's in the world, and it has to be solved by the world not just the black people, and it has to be the community, it has to be us to come together and say we have to have some equality in this world and start treating everybody like we want to be treated. Yeah, so that clip just causes me to tear up quite frequently when I watch it because it really is something that I think many of us as black folk can relate to, particularly those of us who have had the blessing and the burden of parenting. And so when we look at racism in all of its forms, racism has a direct impact on the mental health of African Americans, and it results in certain outcomes happening to us because of its impact. Let me say that I appreciate this discussion so far, 
this is so insightful. I thank you, Pastor Bowman, for your expertise and your heart and passion for Christ and for people. And again, at the screen, uh, on the bottom of the screen, you'll see an address, a Twitter handle, and also Pastor Bowman's website. And you'll find resources there. As I said in introduction, he's a published writer, columnist, uh, has spoken in many places and has shared great insights, both in the, his profession um, as a mental health clinician, but also as a pastor and as a thinker and a solution truth seeker in our society. So, again, thank you for being with us on, on today, Pastor Bowman. Hey, thank you. Let me ask this next question. How does the lack of access to mental health professionals adversely affect people in general and black people in particular? I think lack of access, Dr. Hudson, has basically put us in a position where the sense of hopelessness is being perpetuated mm. because it's one thing for a person to acknowledge and to recognize that there is a problem, but then to put forth some effort to alleviating that problem and you have all of these barriers to access to care, then that can create frustration, that can create hopelessness, and that is additional mental health problems on top of mental health problems. And so, yeah, that's, that's the impact that it has when there's that lack of access. And then Ultimately, some people kind of just throw up their arms and give up at that point. Mm. Let me digress just for a mm -hmm. moment and ask you, as a clinician, a professional, what would you say to someone seeking a career uh, in this field? I would say, awesome, that there are various disciplines within mental health. Of course, social work is my favorite because obviously I'm a social worker, but you have other disciplines with which we work, you have psychology, you have licensed professional counselors, you have licensed marriage and family therapists, and I believe all of us have a role to play. So yeah, all you need to do if you are engaged in undergraduate study is to set up a time with your academic advisor to talk about the different fields through which you can access mental health. And that is inclusive, obviously, of social work, also psychology, and you have various counseling and therapy-related degrees. But ultimately, one has to go at least to the master's degree to practice in this field. And what I love about clinical social work is that as a licensed clinical social worker, I am qualified to do everything that a doctoral-level psychologist can do except psychological testing. That would be the only area in which they are specifically skilled by virtue of having a doctorate. Thanks for sharing that. We want, you know, parents who are watching this, and you may see aptitude in your children, that, that some kids just have a concern for others. I heard mm -hmm. this story over and over again. Your testimony is similar where uh, people have grown, have grown up with a sense of, I just care, I see somebody, and I have this mm -hmm. sense of care for them. Well, that could be part of your leaning or God's mm -hmm. calling mm -hmm. to pursue the field. That's right. And again, because we have only 2% mm -hmm. <laughs> of mm -hmm. persons, African-American persons in the field, mm -hmm. we need more people to choose this profession. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Now, what can people do mm -hmm. short of self-diagnosing and self-medicating mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What can they do to help themselves maintain good mental health? Realizing that we all cannot get to the clinician. We can't get the help today. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to self-diagnose or medicate mm-hmm. ourselves. But what can we do to help ourselves mm-hmm. where our mental health is concerned? Well, I think it starts with developing your own personal self-care plan. And so self-care is just simply what it sounds like. You're caring for yourself. And there are some specific ways in which we as human beings can care for ourselves. Of course, getting involved with rest, relaxation, recreation are things that will help us feel better, both at the physical level as well as the mental health level. And then also, as I often tell my patients, that there are three areas that often impact our mental health more than any other areas, and that would have to do with sleep, exercise, and diet. And so for some of us, just being more intentional to get more sleep will help us because a lack of sleep will cause us to be more irritable, will cause us to have a lack of an attention span, will cause us to have a lack of energy. So focusing specifically on the area of sleep is important. And for others of us, we might discover that we have a diagnosis of sleep apnea. For instance, Mm -hmm. I was having issues with my sleep about 16 years ago, and my wife was having issues with my snoring. Right. Yes. And so it goes hand in hand. Yes. <laughs> Therefore, she encouraged me to get a sleep study. Okay. And that sleep study determined that I had sleep apnea. And since I've been on the CPAP machine, my sleep has been immeasurably better. And so sleep, exercise, you know, when we exercise, God has fixed it so that we release natural endorphins. Right. Those feel good chemicals in our bodies that are activated when we exercise. And then also a well-balanced diet is important to contributing to our mental health outcomes. And so those are three basic areas that we can look at in our self-care plan. But in addition to that, I think that looking at, for instance, listening to music, Mm. that is something that is soothing to many of us, right? For others of us, just getting outdoors in nature is photography very important. Photography for me. Is yeah, photography, photography is, yeah, yes. that's, a, that's an interest of mine Yes, that the iPhone has helped yes. uh, me to pursue more. So, yeah, those are things that are part of a self-care plan, and I think each and every one of us ought to have one, and that provides for us a good baseline for seeking to have good mental health. Let me affirm what Pastor Bowman said. In our last town hall meeting, of Wellness Connection, we had Dr. Smart to speak to us, uh, a neurologist. Mm-hmm. And he's had people come to him, family members say, well, my dad, whomever, he has dementia. They just try to diagnose the mm-hmm. condition not knowing. Well, he saw the patient, and he found out in some cases the person was so sleep-deprived, mm-hmm. it seemed like dementia mm-hmm. Wow, to the person. Wow. It wasn't dementia. It was mm-hmm. a lack of sleep. Lack of sleep. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting how that lack of rest, uh, lack of good nutrition, lack mm-hmm. of exercise, mm-hmm. it can it can seem like we mm-hmm. have issues that mm-hmm. really would be resolved, mm-hmm. as you say, form a plan mm-hmm. for self-care. That's right. So, so key. Now, you've also, let me also emphasize to the audience, uh, we're going to put in the show notes of the program and podcast, Resources, Mm -hmm. from Pastor Bowman. 
And he sent me pages of information. I've been pouring through it, gleaning from it. We're having to work to keep this podcast from being three hours long because <laughs> there's so much insight. Mm-hmm. And But you'll find those resources in the notes and on Pastor Bowman's website, which is shown here on the screen. I want to again appreciate Pastor Bowman for this time and coming up from Louisville to Indianapolis to meet with us to have this program and podcast, Health and Wellness in Focus. I want to conclude our time by asking Pastor Bowman, opening up kind of his his heart to us and mine and asking uh, if he wants to share anything else with our audience, with our viewers and listeners that we haven't touched upon, things on your heart. Just please share your heart with us. Yes, sir. Thank you. So we talked earlier about the stigma with regard to mental illness or mental health even. And one of the ways in which we can kill the stigma in the African-American community that pertains to mental illness or mental health is when more of us are transparent and we share our story. So I'm not ashamed to say that for the last 17 years, I have been engaged in mental health treatment. I have been prescribed medication that has, to be quite frank, been a game changer. I have been in therapy periodically. In fact, I jokingly say that I've got two therapists on speed dial if I ever need them. And so I'm very transparent and open with my congregation as well as with my patients that are in my secular practice because I think it's important that those of us who are degreed, those of us who are credentialed, that we use ourselves to some extent to encourage others. And by doing that, we can thereby kill the stigma. The best way to kill the stigma of mental illness is when those of us who have received the benefit of mental health treatment can share our story in terms of how these various tools have been helpful to us. Again, this is Pastor Brian Hudson. You've been watching Health and Wellness in Focus. Well, watching and listening is both a podcast and a video presentation. And again, Pastor Bowman, thank you so much, sir. Hey, thank you, uh, For being here today. All right. And in case nobody has said it lately, thank you for your service, sir. All right. You know, to this profession, to our veterans at the VA, serving the wounded Sometimes the wounded warriors, uh, those who have all types of, I can't even imagine what some have been through. Mm-hmm. We have a few, we have two or three Vietnam veterans in our congregation, mm-hmm. and they don't talk about it, mm-hmm. but they've lived it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people in life have are living situations they don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people uh, when someone's behavior is seems unusual, don't 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 judge them. Mm-hmm. Listen to this: there are, there are always more broken hearts than hard hearts. Mm. Never mm. forget that. Because mm. a broken heart can manifest behavior. Don't misread it. Don't fail to have compassion and miss an opportunity to mm. make a difference in somebody's life. I appreciate um, Mr. Corey Jones, my co-host, and uh, who is behind the camera today, actually. And I want you to just log on to wellnessconnectionindy.org. You can find all of our past programs and podcasts at the website. Please subscribe to the podcast. It's on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We are on uh, Audible. And you'll be able to, uh, when new shows are released, notification come to your device. You can 
listen to it or go to the YouTube channel. So again, thank you for watching. Health and Wellness Focus. We'll see you next time.